communion service or partaking of the Lord's Supper, which we're going to do this morning, we often think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Um, We go there often uh, when we're actually partaking of the elements. We rarely, if ever, touch on chapter 10, but chapters 10 and 11 are both dealing with this communion with the Lord, this communion that we have with God uh, through the Lord Jesus Christ. And you might remember when Jesus was in the upper room with his disciples, the night he was betrayed. You remember that night as he was in the upper room um, and he was uh, giving instruction to his disciples. They were partaking of, they were celebrating the Passover and um, Judas was going to be identified. He would leave the room. He would go and sell Jesus. Jesus left the upper room after giving this instruction to his disciples, and he walked down out of Jerusalem, down across the Kidron, uh, the brook Kidron there, and then up into, into the Garden of Gethsemane, where he had often retreated. And it was that very night that he would be betrayed with a kiss. It was that very night where the other apostles, the, his apostles, could not stay awake to pray with him. Um, in that night of great affliction for him and sorrow and grief, in his uh, omniscience, in his knowing all things, he knew what was about to take place. He knew that Judas was going to come, betray him with a kiss. He knew he was going to be taken and he was going to be lied about and uh, illegally tried throughout the night. He knew that Peter was going to deny him three times. Um, He knew... um, by the following day that he would be, at that time, that he would be in the grave. He would be in the tomb. He would be dead. He, he knew that he, before that, would be hanging on a cross and he'd be beaten uh, ruthlessly, a battered to the point of being unrecognizable. Um, but the greatest suffering of Jesus Christ was not his physical suffering. And I've told you this before, um, though his physical suffering was immense, Um, it was not the greatest suffering that he endured. The greatest suffering that Jesus Christ endured was becoming sin and being forsaken by his father, being judged by his father for the sins of the whole world. And so we come to this service this morning, and it is a serious one. It's uh, there's a lot, I think, that goes on during the Lord's Supper in a time of communion that we don't often think about. I grew up in a Christian home. I was one of those children who were looking down at their parents um, with that look of, can I can I take can I drink the grape juice? Can I can I eat the bread? And what a disappointment it was to eat the bread and taste it when I finally did. Um, At least it didn't taste good. And so I say that to say, for some of us, this this uh, event, this command that our Lord has given us, baptism is one command that he gave us, the Lord's Supper is another. This is something that we've many of us have done over and over again throughout our lives, and I wonder how many of us know the reason why. And you know, we might say, well, because the Lord commanded it. And that would be an accurate answer. But there's so much more that goes on during the Lord's Supper that I don't know that we're aware of. But I want to draw your attention to it this morning. Jesus had told his disciples in that upper room, he had said, do this in remembrance of me. And do it until I come. 
And the Bible teaches us that we're going to be doing this uh, throughout eternity as well with him in the new kingdom and throughout eternity. And he's going to be there. And we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper with him throughout all of eternity, looking back with great rejoicing, no sorrow, but great rejoicing and thanksgiving for what our Lord Jesus Christ did for us in securing our salvation. So this is something that many of us have, many of us have done for a long time. And, and those of us who are saved are going to be doing it for the rest of eternity. So what, what is the point? Um, what is it that we're supposed to gain from this? Um, what is the importance of it? Uh, what is what what is it in this that is intended for our benefit or how can we benefit from it? And I want to answer those questions in our time this morning. I ask you to look to first Corinthians chapter 10. And I'm going to give you several reasons more than that, actually, but uh, we'll move quickly through them. But I, I noticed the first reason of why do we do this? Why do we come here? What really takes place at the Lord's table? And, I, and the first uh, truth I would give to you this morning is that we see the common partaking of Christ's presence. There's a spiritual element of worship that is a part of this. Look at, look at verse number 16 of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He says, the cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? Now the word communion, and you see it in that verse twice, but the word communion means partnership, or it means benefaction or uh, benefactor. It means fellowship. And so we have this common fellowship. There are many in this room this morning. Many of you would say, uh, Pastor Ferguson, I'm a saved person. I have put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. God sought me out. He drew me to himself and he saved my soul. And the Lord Jesus Christ is my Lord and he is my savior. Many in this room would say that there might be some in this room and you would be honest enough perhaps to say, Pastor Ferguson, that is not me. I've never put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is not my Savior, and, uh, and I'm honest enough to say that. But most here this morning would say that you're a saved person. So we have this common partaking of Christ's presence when we assemble like this and we partake of the Lord's Supper. There's an element of worship to it. It's here that we publicly celebrate our common union with Christ. I mean, think about that this morning. Uh, many, some here have been saved for 50 years, others for maybe 20, one, maybe some for one or two or a few months. And uh, we have come from different backgrounds, different parts of the country. And, um, and yet we're, get, we're assembled here today. Why? With this common reality that the Lord Jesus Christ saved me and he saved you. We could go on this, around this room and many of you would say, he saved me. He saved me too. And, and, our, and, and our salvation testimonies are the same. The dates may be different. The, um, the place in the world might be different. But the testimony is the same, and that is that we were sinners. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, aliens from God by wicked works. In and of ourselves, we could do nothing. There was no nothing good inside of us. 
There was no life in us, and yet God saved us, and we have that in common. And so there's a real communion that takes place here this morning. It's a real sharing in the blood of Jesus Christ and the sharing in the body of Christ. And when we partake in the sharing of the blood of Christ and in the sharing of the body of Christ, there's this fellowship, this very real communion or fellowship, the spiritual fellowship with Christ. What would I liken it to? Well, I would liken, because I think this is something hard to understand, actually. What would I liken it to? I would liken it to prayer, a time of corporate prayer, where we are communing with the Lord in prayer, where we are humbling ourselves and corporately submitting ourselves to what God desires for our lives, and we are asking him to do in us what he desires. That would be corporate prayer. We could liken this um, communion to a worship, where we worship, we lift up our voices together, or we receive the word of God together, and we humbly submit ourselves to the instruction of the word of God together. I'd liken it to the experience of singing praises to Christ and knowing that Christ inhabits our praise. He inhabits our worship. And this is where we publicly celebrate our shared life with Christ. Christ's life is my life. And Christ's life and Christ's death is my death. And it doesn't matter if a person's 15 or 16 years old or if he's 43 years old. There's this common uh, coming together and receiving of these elements, which represent the body of Christ and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Two, I notice that we commune with each other as saints. And look at verse 17, and we see this in verse 17. There's a communion with each other as saints. He says, for we, being many, many individuals, are one bread. What does that mean, one bread? Or one bread. One body. Whose body? The body of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we being many, we've talked about that, members gifted by the Holy Spirit differently, saved at different times, different backgrounds, different ages, different incomes, different uh, hobbies. For we being many are one bread. We're one body. And he says it in the middle of that verse. For we are all partakers of that one bread. What one bread are we a partaker of? The Lord. The body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we think about that. That's the spiritual reality, the truth, that all of us who are saved are partakers of one bread. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here we are now, having we know that by faith, hearing it from the word of God. But as the bread goes out this morning, all of we who are saved, we're going to reach our hands into that that plate, and we're going to pull out a piece of bread, and we're going to put it inside of our mouths, and we are publicly declaring that we are personally a partaker of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Lord's table is a reminder of the cross, where we're all, we all start at the same place. At the foot of the cross, we're all equal in need of grace, bringing nothing good of ourselves to the Lord. We're all equally recipients of a salvation, the salvation of God that is unearned. We can do nothing to receive it in and of ourselves, nothing to do that we can receive it. It's undeserved, and we're actually communing with each other. There is one Lord, the Bible teaches us, and one faith, 
and one baptism, and we are one body and one bread, the body of Christ. We possess one spirit, and here's where we celebrate our common eternal life, this shared eternal life that is Christ, oneness in the body of Christ. And this is where we're reminded of the importance of our spiritual unity of loving one another and experiencing true fellowship with one another and ministering to one another, serving one another and seeking peace with one another. And that all is happening here. There's a third truth. Look at verse number 19 and following, and I'll say it this way. When we come to the Lord's table, we come to worship God alone. Do any of us in this room struggle with idolatry? I do. I do. God made us to worship. He designed us to worship. But every single one of us struggles with idolatry. And it shows up in different ways. Um, We'll talk about maybe some idols if we have a little bit of time, but it shows up in different ways. And so there's a struggle. I think Paul, the Apostle Paul, struggled with it. I think the other apostles struggled with it. The early churches struggled with it. We struggle with it today. And so we've come apart from the world today, and we've come and we've assembled ourselves here, and we're going to partake of the, of, of the Lord's Supper. And it's interesting, in this passage, as he's talking about the Lord's Supper, partaking and how a church ought to approach it and the benefits that it produces in our lives when we do, he talks about idolatry. So throughout this week, we've struggled with idolatry. We've struggled with loving other things more than we love God. Specifically, areas in the word of God where it tells us that we should not do things. Of course, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. And yet all of us at times disobey those commandments. Why? Because we love something else more, ourselves, primarily more than we love the Lord. And so we know what the truth is sometimes, and yet we choose to disregard the truth and do what our flesh desires to do, and it is a product of idolatry. And so when we come out of the world and we come to this place, in all of us, there may be different idols. But as believers, as God's children, we come to this place and we humbly choose corporately that we are going to worship the Lord alone. And we're choosing to turn away from those idols that are continually creeping in. We're choosing to deny ourselves and our flesh that is saying, you know, you ought, you deserve it. Uh, you, you should have that. You need that. And we're choosing to worship the Lord alone. Look at verse number 19, how, he, how it's put in, in God's word. It says in verse 19, What say I then, that the idol is anything? The God, the false God, is it it anything? Or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? You know, I mean, you're worshiping something that doesn't even exist. The God that is, it's nothing. It's it's man-made, it's an imagination. It's, It's nothing. It has no power, no personality. It's nothing. Verse 20, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils. And not to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. That's quite a statement here. He says, in in that day, the paganism, the idolatry, 
we often look at the idolatry of the past, of the ancient world, as, wow, I'm so glad we're past that. I'm so glad we don't struggle with idolatry like that. I mean, I don't know of anyone here who has a shrine in their house set up to Baal or Ashtaroth, right, or Zeus, you know, we don't we don't have that with candles lit and curtains, you know. We'd, so we would say we don't we don't we don't have idolatry, um, but they did and we do. It may look a little bit different, but but Paul's telling this church and these people had been a part of this. This was part of their culture, and he was saying, speaking of those who were unsaved, the Gentiles in this region of the country or in the world and the, in the area of Corinth. He's saying when they go in, they, they sac- make sacrifices, their allegiance is to these idols, these false gods, and they, they, they offer sacrifices to these false gods, but the gods are nothing. They, they're nothing. They're, they have nothing. They're no power. They don't, really don't exist. They're just a figment of someone's imagination. And uh, he said, but you're not, just, you're not making sacrifice to the god. You're actually making sacrifice to demons, to devils. Idolatry is demonic. Wherever it is found, it has a demonic backing behind it. Continue with me. Look at verse 21. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. So you can't worship the Lord and worship idols and the devils that are behind it. You cannot be partakers of the Lord's table, which is what we're doing this morning, and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And so he's talking to them, and he's going to get to chapter 11. And he's going to talk about purity. He's going to talk about uh, partake of the bread in this manner, and partake of the the juice, the wine, in this manner. Uh, He's going to get to all of that, but he's, he's talking to them about how they approach the Lord's Supper. And he's saying, don't approach the Lord thinking that you can worship Him And worship your idols as well. You can't do both. You have to make a decision. And and we're confronted with this when we partake of the Lord's Supper. We're confronted with who who do we worship? Who, Who satisfies us and can bring satisfaction to our hearts? Who is the one who can guide us and direct us through life? Is it our idols? Who is it that ultimately brings us joy and peace that passeth all understanding? Is it our idols? Or is it God? And truly, all of us with our idols, we like our idols because our idols do bring us some measure of satisfaction and some measure of joy or happiness or a moment of contentment or a moment of fulfillment. We like our idols for that reason. But when we come to the Lord's Supper, we're confronted with with the reality, are our idols really anything at all? Can our idols save us at all? Can they deliver us? Can they bring true joy? Can they bring true satisfaction? And the answer, of course, to that question is no. In the Corinthian situation, they came out of paganism. They had come out of this false religion. They had had feasts and festivals and worship experiences tied to false gods. And the worship of false gods is the worship of demons, as we read in verse number 20. And Paul is saying you cannot come to the table of the Lord and then turn around and go to the pagan feast. You cannot worship at the table of the Lord and at the table of demons. Um, In Exodus chapter 20, God 
lets Israel know he's had it with idolatry. They've been turning to idols of this world. I mean, he was their deliverer. He was the one who had brought them out of Egypt. He had brought, he had, he had split the Red Sea in two. And they had walked across on dry ground. I mean, God had destroyed Pharaoh and his army. God had been providing for them. And yet, God's chosen people continually were turning to idols. And they are there as an example to you and me. Because we are prone to this. We are prone to continually turning to idols. And in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 3, the Bible, God says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children under the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Moms and dads, we ought to be cautious. We ought to realize the danger of idolatry in our lives and it being visited upon our children to the third and fourth generation. We love our idols, and in essence, we hate the Lord. Only one God owns and operates this universe, and it's none of the idols. Only one God designed it, and only one God knows how it works. He is the only God who can help us. He is the only God who can direct us. He is the only God who satisfies us. And throughout human history, there have been many, many false gods. Gods of agriculture, gods of commerce, gods of the sea, gods of the sun, gods of fertility, gods of the hunt. (laughs) The list is endless. Mankind is always creating gods who are nothing. The gods of today may have different names, but they are still false gods and it is still idolatry. The God of portfolios, the gods of adult entertainment, the gods of sports, the gods of family. It's interesting to me that we as human beings, we can make idols out of even things that are good. Don't ever worship this church. Don't worship your pastors. Don't worship our you. Don't worship education. Um, we ought not worship our spouse. I mean, God's given us these things as gifts and blessings, and we ought to be thankful and rejoice in him, but we ought to worship him. We, We ought not worship a career. Anything at all can become an idol in our lives when we have a greater allegiance and love for that than we do for God. Is it not idolatry that drives the person to be a poor steward of what God has blessed him with? God tells us to be a a good steward of what he's given us. And yet, while uh, drowning in debt, they will go out and spend and spend and spend and spend and find some temporary satisfaction while drowning in debt financially. Is it not idolatry that causes a person to do that? Is it not idolatry for the even a saved man who knows what the word of God says about um, pornea, pornography, fornication, to go back to it, even when God says certain things or that we are not to go there. And yet the man goes back to it again and again and again and again because he loves himself and he loves his idol more than he loves God. 
and he loves the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, it's idolatry. It becomes a substitute for God. And when we, we can't live without it, and when we live for it, but only God can help, and only God can direct, and only God can satisfy. And when we come together as a church to the Lord's Supper, we are turning away from our idols. And we're turning to the Lord, and we are saying that we worship God alone. That He is the Savior. He is our Savior. And He is able to satisfy. And it is an act of faith. It's an act of faith. There's no place for hanging on to anything. There's no place for mixed loyalty. There's no place for hanging on to anything that is false or demonic or anything that is in the of the darkness. And this is where we leave it all. Christ is Lord. And so as the elements are being passed out to you, you know your idol, probably. I pray the Holy Spirit even this morning is identifying certain things in your life. And maybe you're wondering and you're speaking with the Lord and you're listening for his direction by his word and his spirit in your heart. Have I made my family an idol? Have I made my education an idol? Have I made this an idol? It's an idol. It's not just an addiction. It's an, it's an idol. I worship. I bow to it repeatedly. I forsake family and friends. I forsake the Lord for it. It's an idol. I'm worshiping it. And this is a great place to, to repent of that. And that is what happens when we partake of this communion with our Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the Bible says, Wherefore, come out from among them, and be separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. So every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, we have an, an, an incredible, an awesome opportunity to refresh our commitment to him as our master and as our Lord. And I've defined that for you so many times. Curios, supreme authority over heaven and earth. The creator, Christos, the anointed one, the Christ, our Lord, our, our supreme head. And we, and we are reminded of his death and his burial and his resurrection, his sacrifice, his suffering on the cross, his becoming our sin. And we turn away from idols and we worship him. I'll give you another truth, and that is in verse 24 and following. Look, look over to chapter 11. Would you, chapter 11, when we come to the Lord's table, not only is it a common partaking of Christ's presence and a communion with each other as saints and worshiping God alone, but it's also a sacrifice for us. It's we remember Christ's sacrifice for us. Look at verse 24. It says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take. Eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Now, the, we have little pieces of unleavened bread that will be passed out. Jesus would have been no doubt um, asking the men to tear off a piece of the unleavened bread off of that loaf. And in the next verse, in verse 25, he says, After the same manner also he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, this cup is the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And the cup would have been a single cup, I believe, that would have been passed around. And they would have all communed out of that single cup. 
But we remember when we come to the Lord's Supper, the Lord's table, we remember his sacrifice for us. I think this is probably the most familiar part of the Lord's Supper, remembering the work of Christ on the cross. Because we are prone to forgetting it, we're prone to going through days without thinking about that Jesus Christ died for us. We're prone to be um, self-sufficient. We view ourselves as that. And we're reminded that his sacrifice is for our sin and our deliverance from our, from our sin. We were, we're reminded of that at the Lord's Supper. His payment for the penalty of our sin. And by his blood that we are forgiven of our sins. And his death has given us life. It was the crushing of Satan and the deliverance of hell for the souls of all who would ever believe. And in the bread we remember that he gave his body. In the cup we remember that he shed his blood. We remember his saving work on the cross and that unique and supreme and marvelous work by which our salvation was purchased. And what is our response to that? Well, it's thanksgiving. It's thanksgiving. It's praise. God, thank you for sending your son. Thank you for his willingness to be beaten for me. Thank you for his willingness to endure. Thank you for his willingness to submit himself to your will. Remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's praying, Father, if thou be willing, let this cup pass from me. Why? Because he knows what's about to happen. He knows he's about to become the sin of, of all of us, the sin of the whole world. He is about to become sin. He who is righteous is about to become vile. And he is, his physical body is sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. He knows that his father is going to judge him, our sin, in him on the cross. He knows he's going to be separated from his father. Fellowship is going to be broken. God Fellowship is broken within God, the Godhead. And his physical body is, is shuddering under the load. But then he says, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And so we remember Christ's sacrifice. Look at verse 26 of chapter 11. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we proclaim the cross. Look at verse number 26. He says, for as often... As ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. I've talked a little bit about it, his death. His death was a violent death, a death on the cross. It would have been common um, at that time when Jesus lived. Death on the cross was part of capital punishment for the Roman Empire. It would have been common to see someone hanging on a cross. It was not uncommon. Today, people wear crosses, crucifixes. Um, in that day, that would be similar to wearing an electric chair around your neck. No one would have done that. But this cross means something different to us today than it did to them then. This cross means something different. It is symbolic. It reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice. It reminds us of, of his humility. It reminds us of God's love. It reminds us of the submission of Christ to the Father within the Godhead. 
But when we think of the cross and crucifixion, we know that it was brutal, it was terrible, it was horrific. When we talk about the cross and we celebrate the cross, we remember the cross, we proclaim the cross, when we partake of this, we are identifying with Christ in his death, and we are publicly following him and taking up our cross. And that is something that comes to our minds when we think about the cross of Christ, because you remember uh, in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus, speaking to his apostles and others, he gathered them to himself, and Jesus told them that if any man was going to be his disciple, he needed to be willing to take up his own cross daily and follow the Lord. Now, we have not, none of us have been asked to do what Jesus did. Jesus was asked to become sin for the whole world and to be separated from the Father and die in our place. None of us could do that. None of us have been asked to do that. But God has given to each one of his children a cross to bear. And I think it's at least one, and it may be more, and for it may be different for each individual, a cross to bear. And there's suffering that comes with bearing a cross. There's shame. When we think about the cross of Christ, it was a form in Jesus' day of, uh, it was a form of public execution. So it was official, official Um, in the sense of the Roman Empire, was officially officially taking a, a stand against that individual. It was official persecution. It was public shame. It was suffering, and it was death. And Jesus said, says to us, "We are who is are his people." He says, "Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself." And take up his cross and follow me. Deny self. Come after me. Follow me. Take up your cross daily. And so when we come to the Lord's Supper, we are proclaiming the cross. Not only what Jesus Christ did on the cross, but that we are willing to follow our Lord and our Savior. All of this is wrapped up in the communion or the Lord's table that we have. It's not just a matter of um, bread that is unleavened, doesn't has no flavor, or grape juice, and there's not very much in there. You know, these are childish thoughts that I had growing up. There's so much more. Each of us are to come after the Lord, deny ourselves, take up His our cross that he has given us and follow our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I ask you this question this morning, are you willing to take up your cross and follow the Lord? You know, for someone that could be being single the rest of their lives, that could be the cross. For them, or maybe one. For another, it could be being married to someone. For another, it could be a disease of some kind. For another, it could be a temptation that they face time and time and time and time again. Or maybe it's the rejection of family or the rejection of friends. The cross was a symbol of persecution and all of these sorts of things. And it was for the joy that was set before the Lord Jesus Christ that he endured the cross. The joy 
that we that he would obtain his inheritance by his sacrifice. And it is for the joy that is set before us that we take up the cross that he has chosen for us. Keith Getty wrote a song called Beneath the Cross of Jesus. It's in our hymnal. I'll read it to you. The words are amazing, I think. He says, beneath the cross of Jesus, I find a place to stand. And wonder at such mercy that calls me as I am. For hands that should discard me hold wounds which tell me come. Beneath the cross of Jesus, my unworthy soul is one. Beneath the cross of Jesus, his family is my own. Once strangers chasing selfish dreams, now one through grace alone. How could I now dishonor the ones that you have loved? Beneath the cross of Jesus, see the children called by God. Beneath the cross of Jesus, the path before the crown. That is not an easy path. We follow in his footsteps where promised hope is found. How great the joy before us to be his perfect bride. Beneath the cross of Jesus, we will gladly live our lives. That is an amazing song. Look it up. 285 later. Moving on now, but 285. Look it up. Ponder the words. They're amazing it's, it, it has to do with glorying in the cross and its, its power through Jesus Christ who hung on that cross to save me from my wretched sin. But it also talks about me taking up my cross and for the joy and the crown and the reward that God has for his children who follow him in faith, walking faithfully through this life and denying self like Christ to please him. And when we come to the Lord's table, this is a part of what's happening. Turning away from idols. Lord, forgive me for my sin. The sin that does so easily beset me. Lord, cleanse me. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your long suffering with me. Thank you for your ceaseless love toward me. Thank you for making me your own, your child. Thank you for claiming me for yourself and not leaving me or forsaking me, uh, leaving to myself and my own destruction, but for loving me. Uh, And then, Lord, I see what you're asking me to do, and I'm going to deny myself by faith, and I'm going to follow my Lord and my Savior who died for me and by his shed who, who took away my sins for me. This is all wrapped up in the Lord's Supper. There's one more truth I want to give you, and then we'll partake of it. Look at verse 27. When we come to this table, we are brought to the place of purification. We're brought to the place of purification, and this is all in the passage. Look at verse 27. He says, Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, unworthily, that word means irreverently or carelessly, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. So this is not something we should do carelessly. It's not just bread and it's not just grape juice. 
Now, it's not what the Catholics call transubstantiation either, where it turns into Jesus' flesh, literally, or his blood. So we're not drinking blood. We're not eating people, okay? Um, that's not what the Bible teaches. But it is spiritual. Just like it was for the Greeks to go in to the place of idolatry and to offer sacrifices and to partake, they were, Paul says, God says, communing with devils, with demons. There was a spiritual communion that was taking place. Don't do it. Even though the God is nothing, the demons behind the God are something. So just like that's true, idolatry is true, so is it true when we come to this, there is spiritual communion happening with the Lord. It's, it's important. It's not just a formality. It's not just us. The Lord is involved. So we ought to come seriously. Why? Why should we examine our hearts? Well, look at verse number 29. Or verse 28. But let a man examine himself. That means to test or to scrutinize. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily or with frivolity, carelessness, eateth and drinketh damnation, refers to, to condemnation or judgment. It has the idea of chastening. Damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. And he goes on to say, For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. So important are these words. Paul tells the church at Corinth, some of you are sick. You are physically sick. You are diseased. And some of you have died because you have partaken of the Lord's Supper carelessly. And, and for the church at Corinth, I mean, for, for them, it was so careless. They, it, it, was a, it, was, it turned into, a, in some ways, a gluttonous, showy feast. And some were actually getting drunk while they were celebrating. I mean, it was a total missing of the cross and the Lord Jesus Christ. So we could say, well, we don't have any alcohol. No one's going to get drunk. We don't. We're, no one's uh, showing off what they brought. So we don't have to worry about that, Pastor Ferguson. But yet still the words are here. Don't partake carelessly. Be serious about it. Now, I want to tell you this before we, we're going to sing in just a moment. But I, I want to say this. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're encouraged to partake. I believe it's a command. I don't believe it's optional. I've heard it said, if you're, if you're not right with the Lord, then don't partake. I don't agree with that. I think if you're not right with the Lord, you need to get right with the Lord. And you need to obey the Lord. The Lord has made us right with him, by the way. He has forgiven us of every sin, past, present, and future. This is not a matter of, can I remember all the sins since the last communion? That's not what this is about. If you have received Lord Jesus Christ, he took away your sins, and he gave to you his righteousness. So, in Christ, you are right with him. The, the point of... Be serious about the Lord's Supper. I would encourage you today, 
even as the men bring the bread to you, it'll come to you when you get it. I would encourage you to take time to pray. If, if you know of sin in your life or idolatry that's been there, confess it. Agree with God about it. Confess it to him. Repent of it. And uh, be right with the Lord. I would encourage you to consider the cross that Jesus was willing to say, not my will, but thine be done, Lord. I would encourage you to consider the cross that God has given to you to bear. And maybe you found yourself resisting to tears, to anger, to resentment against God even. You have let this happen. You have brought these things into my life. And and consider the Lord, your Savior, and his, not my will, but thine be done. And consider your cross. And I would encourage you today to submit and surrender yourself to your Father, who knows you and loves you like nobody else and is doing what is best for you and for his glory. Receive it as coming from him and say, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. There's so much that can be done. And enjoy the communion with, you, with the family of God, the body of Christ. We're one bread. We, don't, we, don't, we could call ourselves Loaf Baptist Church or something like that, you know. Um, but uh, we, think, we don't think of it that way. But, but that's what he's saying. You're, you're one you're, one, you're the body. You're the body of Christ. Think of yourself that way. Think of yourself that way. If you're not saved today, if you don't know the Lord as your personal Savior, God sent his son to die on the cross to save you from death and hell, just like he did me. And if he's revealing these truths to you, you have a responsibility to respond to him obediently. And I would, I would encourage you, Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Put your confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ who died for you to take your sins away and rose again from the grave, conquering death and hell so that you can live. You can have eternal life. And that life is in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning, as best you know how, if, you're, if you do not know the Lord as your personal Savior, with heads bowed and eyes closed in just a few minutes, ask him to save you. Ask him to save you. Put your confidence and trust in him. And no longer in the idols of this world that have let you down time and time again throughout your entire life. Okay. Pastor Tom, would you come and